This message was recorded live at Elevate Church in Erie, Pennsylvania. As followers of Christ, we follow a God who was crucified, dead, buried, got up, walked out of the tomb, demonstrating that there's nothing that you and I can't walk out of. He doesn't love me based on my performance. God loves me based on my position. It matters so much that we imitate Christ and we live out those principles. There's nothing that you could do. There's, there's no great sin that you could have ever committed that would be a barrier between you and Jesus. To learn more about Elevate, how you can get connected, or how you can support the work that Elevate is doing in Erie, visit elevateerie.tv. The Easter message, like here, here's the good news. Most of you have heard this story. Like it doesn't matter if you're a church person or, or, or not. You've heard the Easter story. Maybe you remember as a child, you know, your parents dressing you up and putting you in the khaki pants and the, the button-up shirt with the suspenders. As a little boy or if you're a little girl, you remember, you know, your parents dressing you up in the big dresses and the big hat on and you're still a little bitter about that and that's okay. But most of us have heard the story. But my prayer is that today you hear it in a completely different light. And we're always coming back to this idea right here that, that we were separated from God. So there had to be a sacrifice. And because there's a sacrifice, you and I never have to be the same. We never have to be the same, that forever we can be changed. So I want to give you four reminders this morning. And the first one is this is that Jesus was here, like he was here. Now, when I say that, it sounds so simple, but it blows my mind when I try to think about the fact that there was a man named Jesus Christ who walked this earth, that he was here. There was evidence that Jesus was here. Let me just let me put it this way. Last summer, uh, my wife and I, we took our boys on a, an educational cruise, you're like, an educational cruise, that sounds really nice. Where'd you go? To Alaska and study, you know, the effects of global warming on the glaciers? No, we didn't do that. We went on a three-day cruise on Carnival Cruise Lines from Miami to Bahamas, to the Bahamas during spring break. <laughs> and my boys got the education of their lives. <laughs> they saw things. They saw more body parts and stuff than they would ever learn about in health class or whatever. Like they, they heard things, they witnessed things, they smelled things. I think my boys got a secondhand high on the beach in the Bahamas. And the only reason I know that is because this whole time on the beach, they're coming up to me, dad, I'm really hungry, I'm really hungry. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Those are called the munchies. <laughs> we'll learn about that later. Well, hopefully they won't, hopefully they won't. But they, they love the cruise. Obviously, there's some crazy stuff going on. But what they loved about it, too, was that every day after being out on the beach or being on the boat, they would come back to the room. And no matter what type of condition we left the room in, like when we got back, like it was clean. And there were, there were like these towel creations on the beds, you know, for our kids. And they were blown away. So they could throw their towels on the floor. They could leave them wherever. And by the way, we don't do that at my house. Because if you leave your towel on the floor at my house, my wife will pick it up and strangle you with it. So we don't do that at home. But we'd come back and there was evidence that someone had been there. And the amazing thing is that there is evidence that Jesus was 
here, like on this earth, and I can talk to the biggest skeptic ever, and no one has ever argued with me with the fact that Jesus was here. There was a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago who walked this earth, who slept, ate, drank, grew up. He was as real as the person sitting next to you today is. And the world is fascinated with this man named Jesus. He appears in movies. No one really knows what he looks like, but he appears in movies. And the, the incredible thing is he never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown. And the world is overwhelmed with this man named Jesus. Didn't have a Facebook account. Didn't have an Instagram, you know, account. Didn't, wasn't on MySpace. Ask your mom about that. But the world is fascinated with this person of Jesus. In fact, Colossians 1 says this. It says, for God in his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. To live in Christ. In other words, don't miss this. It pleased God to reveal himself to us through Jesus. To reveal Jesus, to reveal God to us through who Jesus was. Now this blows up the whole idea that God is playing some cosmic game of hide and seek. That he's just up in the clouds playing peekaboo. You know, when you look up, he ducks down and, and he doesn't want to be known, doesn't want to be discovered. Here's what I think. God wants us to know him more than most of us really want to know him. And that's revealed by the fact that he was here. And it pleased God to, to reveal himself to us through Jesus. Now, here's what's amazing about this, because a lot of people will say, well, all religions are the same. Like, they're all the same. As long as, as long as, you know, you can believe something in your heart and you're really sincere about it, then ultimately, one way or the other, you're going to get to God. All religions are the same, which that line of thinking, that logic doesn't work for anything else in our society. Like, if, if you were to say, hey, Colby, what's your phone number? And I said, well, it doesn't really matter. Just pick up the phone, dial in any number you want to, and just believe in your heart <laughs> that you're going to get me. You'd be like, that's stupid. And I'd say, you're right. But for some reason, we think that that line of logic crosses over to religion. And people will say, well, all religions are the same. Well, they're not. They're extremely different. In fact, you can study the, the major five, six, seven religions, depending on how you want to categorize them. And they all have the single theme in common, that you have to work really hard to get to God. Or, or in Buddhism, you have to work really hard to achieve nirvana. That all religions are the same. Well, Christianity is the only religion where there's evidence called the cross, where Jesus worked really hard to get to us. That he loves us. That we have this separation. And Easter is God's desperation to settle our separation with him. You hear me? It's, it's his desperate move to do whatever it takes to let us know we are loved and valued. And it's evidenced by the fact that Jesus was here. He was here. Christianity isn't, I got to work really hard to get to God. Christianity is God did all the work to get to me. He was here. The second thing is this. He was crucified. Now, isn't there some things that as soon as you start to talk about them, like people get a little tense you know, it kind of lets the air out of the room. There are certain subjects that people don't really like to talk about all that much. The crucifixion is one of them. In fact, 
I, I can stand up here and I can talk about marriage. I can talk about sex and dating and relationships and money and family and heaven and hell, which we're going to do, you know, over the next three weeks. And I can talk about all that. But you want to see a room get tense? Talk about the crucifixion. Because Jesus was crucified. And every time I mention this or every time we talk about this, inevitably someone will come up to me and say, Colby, hey, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. When we talk about Jesus being crucified, that makes me uncomfortable. And I understand that because I'm not extremely comfortable with it. But I always respond by saying, well, as uncomfortable as you are, I don't think it was very comfortable for Jesus either. And in fact, aren't you glad that he endured that so you and I wouldn't have to? Because Jesus was crucified. So let's look at it. Let's look at it. Let's keep reading. Verse 19 says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Verse 20, And through him God reconciled everything to himself. Why did we need to be reconciled? Because there was this separation. There was this separation between us and God. And Easter is God's desperation to settle that separation. So he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of, look at this next phrase, Christ's blood on the cross. Now here's what I know. Some of you, you have some really nice cross jewelry and that's, that's great. Maybe you got some nice like cross tattoos and all that and that's awesome. I'm not knocking that. But Jesus didn't shed his blood on the cross so you and I could have some really nice jewelry or the church could have some really cool architecture in it. In fact, let me say this about the cross. For the first 300 to 350 years of the Christian movement, the cross was an illegal symbol. You know why? Because everyone had seen one used. And when that phrase comes up, Christ's blood on the cross, whenever someone in the early church heard that phrase, saw that phrase, read that phrase, like there would be this collective gasp in the room because they could envision what crucifixion looked like. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said the cross only became popular when everyone who had seen someone crucified died. That's when it became popular. Because what happened on the cross was so gruesome, was so gut-wrenching, that, that when the thought of it created this emotional, this, this physical response. Let me, let me walk us through crucifixion. And I'm not going to be able to do it justice. But crucifixion was invented by the Babylonians, by Darius in 519, where he didn't crucify people on like a T, more on like an X. It was like a, a wooden X. Now, he invented it, they invented it, but the Romans perfected crucifixion. And the goal of crucifixion wasn't um, just to kill someone because there were many ways that you could just kill someone. And and quite frankly, there were more cost-effective ways to kill someone. The goal of crucifixion was humiliation. It was torture. And it was to send a warning because crucifixion never happened in the, the back halls and the back, back room of the Roman empire. It always happened in the most public, metropolitan areas in the city, oftentimes at the city gates where people would walk in and see what happened and just kind of as if to say, hey, don't you cross us. Don't you, you know, disobey this law. And crucifixion always, for the most part, happened to men. Like rarely was a woman ever crucified. It was men who committed the most hideous acts 
And most of the time, it was slaves who tried to lead rebellions, who tried to revolt against Rome, as if to say, hey, don't you do that, or you're going to get crucified. Now, there were three elements of crucifixion. They didn't want to just hang someone up, nail them to a cross, and watch them die. There were three elements. The first was the beating. They would take a man, they would strap him to the, the whipping post and, and stretch his back out as much as they could, trying to expose the skin and make it as tight as possible. They'd take a, a cat of nine tails, which was like a, a stick with leather straps, nine leather straps in it. And at the end of the straps, they had tied bone, fragment, um, rocks, metal, glass, whatever they could. And so when you would get whipped with this cat of nine tails, it wouldn't just bounce off of the person. It would, it would get embedded into their skin. And every time they'd pull it away, it would rip flesh from the person's body. And that happened to Jesus. In fact, many times, men never survive the beating. And the Bible tells us that the night before Jesus, this happened to Jesus, he was in the garden. And he was so overwhelmed with the weight of what was about to happen that he was sweating drops of blood, a condition called hematidrosis which makes the skin severely tender as it is. So that happened the night before he was whipped on the post. And then you'd have to take your wooden cross beam, the T, and you'd have to drag it yourself to the place you were gonna be crucified. And scholars will tell you that it weighed anywhere between 50 pounds and 100 pounds. And I'm here to say, it doesn't matter how much it weighed, right? If you had just got the mess beat out of you, and he takes this, this wooden beam and he carries it across his back, which was, which was whipped, which had, had open wounds on it. And he drags it to the place he was crucified. And the Bible tells us that Jesus collapses under the weight of it from exhaustion, from dehydration, more than likely from a loss of blood. And someone has to help him pick it up and carry it to the place to be crucified. And when they get there, they lay him down on it and they take his hands and they drive nails through, tradition tells us through his hands, but more than likely through his wrists. If you drove, drove a nail through a hand, it simply just kind of rip out, you know, under the weight, rip out between the, the bones and the fingers. So that's why they put him between the wrist. In fact, take your two fingers and squeeze right here in between your wrist. There's a major nerve that runs through there. And if you can imagine having a stake driven through your wrist, they would take one hand, they would, they would drive a nail through it, take the other hand, drive a nail through it. Now, if they wanted you to die, you would die then in about 15 or 20 minutes just from suffocation. You couldn't hang that way. But because the goal was humiliation, torture, and as a, a sign, a warning, they would take your feet and they would bend your knees and then they would drive a stake through both feet so that if you wanted to breathe on the cross, you had to pull up with, by the way, nails driven through your wrists and you'd had to inhale and then you'd have to let yourself down to exhale. And that happened to Jesus for six hours. And so no wonder the people in the early church movement, when they heard that phrase, Christ's blood on the cross, they were mortified. They were mortified because that happened to Jesus. But we all know it didn't end there. We all know that he was crucified, dead, and buried. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? That's number three. He rose from the dead. 
Now that's awesome. Like thousands of men were crucified, but only one lived to tell about it. In fact, one verse before where we start in, in uh, Colossians 1.18, uh, one of the phrases used to describe Jesus is that he is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He rose from the dead. In the NIV, it says he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, as soon as I say that, here's what happens. Whenever you say something that, that people don't like, or maybe people have an issue with, like Jesus rose from the dead, because you're with me when I say Jesus was here. Yeah, I can, I can wrap my mind around that. Or when I say Jesus was crucified, yeah, there's evidence of that. But when I say Jesus rose from the dead, a lot of times people will hear that and immediately conspiracy theories start to develop because they don't like it. They can't believe it. In fact, let me give you a modern day example of this, these conspiracy theories. In 2005, George W. Bush was elected president of the United States of America. And there was a guy that, that seriously hated George W. And so he came up with this conspiracy theory that in 2004, when Florida was getting like bombarded with hurricane after hurricane, there was like four hurricanes in one year in Florida, kind of like they were all gathering out in the Atlantic Ocean going, hey, where do you want to go? Let's go to Disney World. So they all went to Disney World and they all just kind of crushed Florida over and over and over. Well, this guy that didn't like George W. Bush came up with this, this theory that said George W. Bush knew that all the elderly people were, were going to Florida, retiring in Florida, and they were draining the Medicare, they were draining the Medicaid system, you know, the, the, the accounts. And so he invented, George W. invented a hurricane machine. <laughs> True story. And he put it in the Atlantic Ocean to send hurricanes to Florida to kill all the old people. Now that's jacked up. But when someone has this, this kind of conspiracy theory, it's really hard, right, to reason with their, their logic because it's so unrealistic. And when it comes to Jesus rising from the dead, that freaks people out because the world sits around scratching their head saying, I don't know what happened. What happened to Jesus? You know, and the Bible's going, hey, we're telling you that he's not there. He's risen. He's alive. In fact, people that say, well, all religions are the same, they're not. You go to the tomb of Buddha, big boy's in there. You go to the tomb of Muhammad, he's in there. You go to the tomb of Jesus, he ain't there, right? I mean, he's risen, he's alive. But especially now, this time of year, you'll see all these different shows on the History Channel that are coming up with these theories, what really happened to Jesus. Let me just, let me give you a few of them. One conspiracy theory is that the disciples stole the body. They took the body. They didn't want the, the movement of Jesus to, to die with Jesus. So they went to the tomb. They beat up the guards. They rolled the stone away. And they, they took the body. They brought him home to Thomas's house, propped him up, you know, did this whole like weekend at Bernie's thing with Jesus. <laughs> Ran outside saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Major problem with that theory Every single one of these guys was willing to be murdered for their faith, to die for their faith, except for one. John died of natural causes. John died of, of just age. However, they did try to boil him in oil, so that's a bad day. But if I'm a, if I'm a disciple... and, and I'm, we got this conspiracy theory, we got this plan, we're going to tell the world, you know that Jesus is alive. 
But then I see Peter get crucified upside down. Then I see James lose his head. I see Thomas get shot up, you know, with arrows. I'm thinking, time out. Like, like we made the whole thing up. Jesus, he's still dead. You know, go back to Thomas's house. Look in the closet. You're going to see him in there. But they were all willing to die for this lie. In fact, I'll take it one step further. In 1 Corinthians 15, you see that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And people will, will write that off and say, well, that was just a, a mass hallucination. You have never smoked anything that good in your life. <laughs> like, that's, that's you, 500 people cannot have the same hallucination. And the world is just trying to, to, to throw these theories out there on what happened to Jesus. And the Bible says, we know. Another one is that the, the Roman officials and the Jewish officials, they stole the body. They, they took the body out, and so when the disciples got there, they said, hey, he's gone. He must be alive. But if you read the scriptures, no one wanted to kill the movement of Christ more than the Roman and Jewish officials. And they could have done it. Like, they could have, they could have taken Jesus' body out of the tomb, paraded him down the middle of the city of Jerusalem, saying, here is your king, here is your, your God. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have a body. My favorite one, people will say uh, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He passed out. They'll say he passed out. He was so overwhelmed, so tired that he just passed out. And so they took him off the cross. He fooled the, fooled the Roman uh, guards there that, that were experts in killing, by the way. He fooled them. They took him down off the cross, wrapped him up in about 75 pounds of burial spice, put him in the tomb, sealed it up. Three days later, Jesus wakes up from his nap shakes off the burial shroud, right? You know, rolls away the, the stone, beats up the guards, which, which remember he was beaten within an inch of his life. He had nails driven through his wrists, had nails driven through his feet, had a spear jabbed in his side, but he beats up the guards. And then he walks 14 miles, seven miles one way with a couple of guys to Bethany, seven miles back. See, the world is trying to figure out what happened to Jesus. And the Bible says it's simple. The world tried to kill him. The world failed. He's alive. He is risen. That Jesus was here. Jesus was crucified. And he rose from the dead. And you're like, Colby, why does any of this matter? Here's why. Because you and I were separated. And Easter is God's desperation to settle that separation. We were separated, so there had to be a sacrifice. And because there's a sacrifice, you and I don't ever have to be the same. We never have to be the same. We can be forever changed. In fact, let me say it this way. Husbands, husbands, have you ever said something to your bride, your wife, that the moment the words came out of your mouth, you regretted it? Yes? Stop lying. You have. Stop lying. Like the moment the words left your mouth, you're like, oh, I'm just going to get my pillow and I'll be on the couch, you know, for the next few days. Probably on the way to church today, you said something you shouldn't have. But I, I'm not proud of this, but just this last week, um, my beautiful wife looked at me and there were some 
there were some new like vitamins or something that were sitting on our sink uh, in, our, in our bedroom. And I asked her, I'm like, hey, well, what are these pills? What are these things? She said, well, one's a prenatal vitamin and one's vitamin D. And I'm like, prenatal vitamin? Wait, that happens. She's like, don't worry, you take them after you, you know, have a baby too. So whew, we're good with that. Um, <laughs> all clear there. But she said, there's some vitamin D. And I'm like, oh, that's good. And she's like, vitamin D, that's, you know, it's, it, it's like sunshine in a bottle. I take it, you know, and it's awesome. It's good for you. And I'm like, praise God, we all need a little sunshine in the bottle. So that's what it was. And the next day, something happened where, you know, I don't even know what it was, but I made this comment. And the moment I did, I wish I could have taken it back. Um, she did something, I did something, and I said, hey, maybe you could use a little more vitamin D. You guys know what I'm feeling right now, don't you? Because the moment I said it, I felt immediate, like, immediately like I separated myself from my wife. Like I created an enemy in my own house. Have you ever done that? And I, if I didn't make things right, if I didn't reconcile, then it wasn't going to go well for me. My Christian story is my God story too. Hey, it's your God's story too. In fact, look what the Bible says in verse 21. It says that this includes you who were once far from God. You were his enemies separated from him. If we're separated from God, the Bible says we're his enemies. Like we've made an enemy with God. And real quick, that's a bad place to be. Because I've read this, and God wins. He's like the guy that always wins. You don't want to be his enemy. But it says we're separated. We're his enemies. Why are we his enemies? Because of our evil thoughts and actions. In other words, our sin. And as soon as you see that, evil thoughts and actions, here's the pushback. A lot of people will say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not the best person, but I'm not evil. Like, I'm not the best person in the world. I got some things I can work on, but I'm not, I'm not an evil person by any means. Parents, let me ask you this real fast. Those of you that have children, if someone or if something hurts your child, is that thing evil, yes or no? Yes. You know what I realized? Is my sin put God's son on the cross. That would make it evil. He says that, because I was separate from him, that he was my enemy through my evil thoughts and actions. Verse 22, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Why did we need reconciled? We were separated. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. Don't miss that. He has brought you. There's going to be a time where you and I are going to be brought into the presence of God. And we're going to have to make an account for this right here, brought you into his own presence. And if you are in Christ, if God has reconciled you to him through Jesus, through uh, his saving grace, and you've received that, his Christ's blood shed on the cross, then you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I want to focus on that last line because this is what a lot of people will say. Well, Colby, I'm a good person. I hear that all the time. So do you. Maybe you've said that. I have friends that, that, that they've had, had friends pass away and at their funeral, they didn't know Jesus, but here's what they'll say. Well, they were a good person. 
hey, real quick, that's not what God's word says. It doesn't say you have to be a good person. What it says is you have to be holy, blameless, and without fault. Who here is willing to say, hey, that's me. I'm holy, blameless, and without fault. So how do we get there? The only way to get there is through Christ. Through understanding that, that we were separated, so there had to be a sacrifice. And when the, he sacrificed himself as we surrendered to him, then we are holy, blameless, without fault. When God sees us, all he sees is his son. Let me set it up this way. I know that the wedding dress in a wedding, that's a big deal, right? Like, ladies want to have a, a bright, white, pretty dress. I've never met a woman that says, I want to wear a red dress. I haven't met that lady yet, all right? But you want your dress to be beautiful, spotless, without stain, without wrinkle, right? You, you, you want it to be perfect. Now I hear guys all the time say, I don't really care about the dress. Well, yes, you do. Like, you don't want your wife coming down to the altar looking like she just came from a tackle football game, right? No one wants that in this room. And we are to one day, and by the way, some of you are thinking, man, that dress is, is, is beautiful. What size dress is that? That's a size six. And I know that because there are some girls arguing in the back and wondering what size it was, and someone said it's a size six, and the other girl goes, I hate her, and that's fine. But it, the Bible says one day, God's going to bring us into his presence. And a lot of people sit there and say, well, I'm a good person. And when he does, I'm a good person. As I'm sincere in my heart, you know, and I, and I do some good things, then I'll be okay. But God's word says that the reality is none of us are good. In fact, we're all stained. that that's who we are, that we have all fallen short of the standard of God, and that's our, our sin, our evil thoughts and actions. And a lot of people would say, well, that's, that's not me. Well, it is, that we are born that way. We're born with the sin nature. And again, people will argue and say, well, children aren't born evil. They just learn to be evil. You're not a parent, because those little things are evil, aren't they? They come out evil. Biting people and stuff. <laughs> and so what do we do here? Oftentimes in the Northeast, we think, all right, I get it. I mean, I've fallen short, you know, but, I, but if I work really hard to make this better, then, then I'll be good. And so we, we, we help philanthropies. We go to church. We, we give to 50-50 raffles. You know, we'll give to the, the raffle for the Corvette. Of course, we might get a Corvette out of the deal, but, you know, I'm doing it because I really care. And so we work really hard to try to make things right, to try to make it good. But the Bible says in Isaiah 64 that our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So we try to act righteous. We try to clean this up ourselves. But ultimately what we do is we just keep getting ourselves more and more, stay with me, more <laughs> and more filthy. And the Bible says that that's who we are. Are. And the more we try to do good, the more dirty we become. And here's the myth that people believe. And yes, I got pudding all over my fingers. But people will believe that, all right, well, God just wants to clean this up. God doesn't want to just clean this up. 
God wants to completely cover this. And the way he does it is through the sacrifice of his son. And the way you and I move from here to here is through right here. So I have one question for you today. What side of the cross are you on? Are you trusting in your own efforts? Are you trusting in your own works? Or have you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation? Like what side are you on? Because Jesus didn't die because he thought he was one of the ways to God. He died for you because he knew he was the only way to God. That's it. There's no other way. And the way you and I go from here to here is through here. Maybe you've been to church your whole life, but you've never trusted Jesus for your salvation. You've never recognized the simple truth that he was here, that he was crucified, and that he rose from the dead. And when you put your trust in him, you move from here to here. Just like my friend Brad did. Watch this. So this is my friend Brad. Brad, like many of you, thanks Brad. Love you brother, love you brother. Brad, like many of you, thought that his work, his effort, was going to be able to gain him the grace of God. But you can't, you can't gain it at all. It's actually freely given to you. And many of us, this, honestly, this is where you are. That you've been doing your best to, to clean up, to, to, to get free of that stain. And until you understand the price that God paid for you because he loves you, thinks that you are valuable, thinks that you are worthy, and that as we receive that payment, we go from here to here. But until then, we are separated. We are enemies of God. There's the separation. And because of a sacrifice, you and I never have to be the same. Now, I grew up in the church. I grew up a pastor's kid. And so I know what to say. I know what to do. I had it all down. At six years old, I prayed a prayer to receive Christ. Six years old, I prayed this prayer basically. God, I don't want to go to hell. That was it. And from that point on, I worked really hard. Because, you know, I thought I, was a, I thought I was good, but I wasn't good. I thought I, was, I thought I was okay with God through my efforts and through, like, doing stuff. But I came to the realization at Asbury College that this was me. That was me. And until, until I went through the cross, until I understood what Jesus paid for me, I would not be here. But the moment I did, see, the holy, blameless, without fault thing, now when God looks at me, that's what he sees. Doesn't see Colby. He doesn't see Brad. He doesn't see Kristen. He doesn't see Dale. He doesn't see any of you. What he sees is his son, Jesus. And for some of you, man, you need to get that right today. You need to nail this down today. So with every head bowed, every eyes closed, I'm going to ask you that one question again. Hey, what side of the cross are you on? And do you know for sure, 
for sure. And I'm not saying that if you died tonight, would you spend eternity with, with God in heaven? I'm saying that you need this to know this so that you can live a full life now. And in Christ, you are made new, you are redeemed, you are restored, you are rescued, and it's not by your works. So are you sure that you've had a moment in your life that you've surrendered to the sacrifice that Christ paid for you and have said yes to following him? If not, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. Because praying is the way that we do that. There's nothing magic about this prayer. The most important part is that you believe it in your heart, that you fully surrender your life, and understand that Jesus was here, that he died for you, that he rose again, and that as you put your faith and trust in him, that you can be made new as well. So if that's you today, pray this prayer with me. You can whisper it to God. You can just pray it in your heart. He knows, Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. Today I come to the full understanding that you came to this earth that you died and that you rose again. And so I put my hope and my trust and my, my, my whole life, God, I give to you. And I confess you as Lord and Savior. Tell them that again. I confess you as Lord and Savior and I repent of my sin. And from this moment on, I choose to follow you with everything that I have in Jesus' name. Amen. With every head bowed, every eyes closed, not looking around. A time for you to solidify this commitment, and I just want to pray for you. If you pray that prayer with me, would you raise your hand, hold it high, hold it proud, extend that elbow, go all the way up with it. Be excited about that decision that you just made today. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. So many hands across this room. Elevate Church, can we celebrate with those? Come on. Come on, church. Let's encourage them that they made the best decision of their life that they were here, but now thanks be to God that Jesus is risen, they are now here. They are clean, they are spotless, they are blameless, they are holy in God's sight. That's incredible. We are always encouraged to know that God is using Elevate to bless people's lives. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, share your story online at elevateerie.tv.